Well, good morning. My name is Taylor Reevely. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm currently leading our, our work in planting a new church in Oregon City. And this morning I'm standing in for Pastor John, who just returned from Israel. And he, I didn't know he was going to be here this morning, so I had a long list of jokes prepared at his expense, but I will withhold them this morning because he's here. Um, this, this morning I want to begin with uh, just sharing with you a particular pain point I experienced this week, in fact yesterday, that I expect many of us have experienced as well. Yesterday I went to the store and I bought eggs. <laughs> I don't know if you've gone to the store recently and tried to find eggs and then tried to check your bank account before you went to the register to purchase those eggs. But I remember eggs were at one time inexpensive enough that you could liberally apply them to your milkshake instead of whey protein. I also bought some chicken, which was at one time the Toyota Corolla of meat, the economy choice. I also bought some gas, and even I'm old enough to remember when gas cost less than a dollar a gallon. Those days are no longer. In fact, 2023 is shaping up to be a year of, uh, of challenge for the entire global economy. And as we sit in our chairs facing the forecast of recession and staring it in the eyes, perhaps feeling anxious about our job security or our ability to pay the mortgage or rent, or our ability to eat what we'd like and fill our cars with fuel, it gives us pause to again consider our relationship with money. This year, for the Christian, is no different than any other year. What I mean by that is this, it is no different because the cultural narrative about money hasn't changed. Money is good. Get more of it. Hoard it. Save it. But also, the biblical narrative about money hasn't changed either. Money is dangerous. Give it away. Because giving it away is more radical during a global economic crisis then in a year of stability, it will require from God's people an abundance of faith, faith that a generous God will provide for His people. And thus, this message is the final installment in our mini-series to start this year entitled, Faith for a New Year. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about prayer and our desire to see God move supernaturally in our lives, in our church, and in the world and we've done it. We've prayed extra already this year. And this morning, as we move to talk about money, we're talking about one of the areas where God's people are promised to experience His supernatural provision as they depend on Him. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 6. The point is this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Second Corinthians, we haven't been here for a while, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. And one thing you should note is the first words of verse 6 say the point is this, which is a weird place to jump in. It means that something he's written prior has a point. So look with me back at the beginning of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes an encouraging report about the happenings at another church in Macedonia. He says this at the beginning of chapter 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And what follows in the rest of 2 Corinthians 8 is Paul expressing his understanding that the church in Corinth had also pledged themselves to give to those in need. But as of yet, they had not yet sent their gift. So he's writing now in some sense an appeal to get it in gear The Macedonian church, see what they have done. You promised. I boasted about your generosity, your promise of generosity to them. So please now, fill in the gap. Make my joy complete and do as you have pledged. But as he's writing this encouragement, he steps back from the details of the letter, so to speak, and generalizes or principalizes the generous life that is to be characteristic of all people who belong to a generous God. And his point is this. You will always have enough to be generous. Or in other words, faith in a generous God will produce generosity in His people. And so, you will always have enough to be generous. And to that end, he writes 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11, where he outlines then in universal terms how faith in God relates to money. Now, before we step into these few verses, 
One word that I'll use often that appears in the text is the word generous. I think you maybe all have in your mind a picture, uh, some sense of what that word means. But I want to define it so we're all on the same page. According to uh, Merriam-Webster, generous means liberal or free in giving. Open-handedness is its synonym. When I use the word, I will not be speaking merely of a moment of generosity, but of a life of generosity, a life that is liberal in giving, a pattern of being. The astonishing reality is that the generosity is not dependent on the amount of your wealth. It's dependent on faith. The church in Macedonia has given out of the abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, having given themselves to God first. You will always have enough to be generous. As we walk through the text now, and Paul is developing this principle, this argument, I want you to take note of five P's, okay? Had to do it. The principle of generosity, the posture of of generous living, the provision for generous living, the promise of generous living, and finally the purpose of generous living. And you need them all. So look with me as we begin in verse 6 with the principle of generous living. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul begins here using an agricultural proverb to explain the spiritual reality of faith and generosity. And from the outset, faith is built in. Every act of sowing seed is an act of faith. Every time the farmer plants and sows the seed, he believes that within the the seed contains the power of life, and he is believing that the weather will behave predictably, and he is believing that it will bear fruit. So built into the principle itself, more than the cause and effect of giving and receiving, is the principle that it depends on faith. So it is with generous living. The generous life doesn't start when your treasure chest overflows. It starts with faith. It doesn't start when you finally own everything you've ever wanted so now you can be generous. It starts with faith. This morning, may you not hear a call to try harder to be better and do more but instead a call to faith. Now, maybe you experienced this principle in your garden or in your field. This last year, I planted zucchini in my garden. I planted early, and I only planted a few seeds because I know what happens to zucchini, and I didn't want a ton of zucchini. I had faith that the sun would start shining in late April, early May, which it did not, And so none of the seeds germinated. I had no zucchini. But I didn't give up. And so I went out in June 
and I pretty much dumped a bag of seeds in each of my hills. I'm going to get some zucchini. Zucchini was growing out of our ears. I'd go out one night and it would be a fingerling under the leaf, and I'd go out the next morning and it was a canoe. I don't know how it happened. The principle, that's the principle he's using to describe generosity, the life of generous giving. Just as it is with zucchini in your garden, so it is with your money. If you do not give generously, your harvest will be small. If you give generously, your harvest will be large. Now, it could be one thing if he stopped there, and you might suppose already, yeah, I need to give more. Maybe it's, it's better if I give more even. But in the next verse, he adds color to the principle, because the principle for generous living is not just to give more, but to give from the heart. Look with me at the posture of generous living found in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This morning, as soon as I mentioned the subject of money, perhaps one or two of you were excited, but likely the rest of you kind of buckled up and like ready for a 40-minute guilt trip. Well, check back in here, because this message is not about money. It's about your heart. In fact, he says that explicitly, as he has decided in his heart, which means the decision about how much to sow or how much to give is a, it's a private decision that takes place in your heart. It is a wisdom posture. It is dependent on faith. The quantity is not prescribed, but the quality of your heart as you give is prescribed. And here, even explicitly, the point is not the giving, but the heart. In fact, in this verse, the word that is translated in the ESV at least, or perhaps your translation as must give, each man must give, is not in the Greek text. The verb in the sentence is omitted. It had to be supplied in your translation because it otherwise doesn't make any sense. Doesn't even, you can't even understand it. But in the Greek, the verb carries the heaviest weight of interpreting the, the force and meaning of the sentence. And without a verb, he's saying the force is that your heart must be right. Not your giving. Your heart must be right. The motivation, the posture behind the action is the point. And that posture is described three times, twice negatively, once positively. He says, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Now, those maybe sound synonymous to our ears, but they're two different subjective states that accompany or give rise to this act of giving. The reluctance is that inward sorrow at the loss of what is given. And the compulsion is the outward pressure or the outward force that demands that one give. Pretty simply, to give regretfully or under compulsion is to sow sparingly, is to act with an unwilling heart and to act joylessly. But positively, 
the posture is this. God loves a cheerful giver. As to our attitude, we should be cheerful as we give, not reluctant. As to motivation, giving should come from a desire to live in God's favor, not from the external constraint. It shouldn't be a mystery why God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver because He Himself is a cheerful giver. And when a human is a cheerful giver, they are imaging God as God intended to be imaged and reflected. We see, we'll see glimpses of the generosity of God in just a moment. But I need to stop here and ask a question. Suppose you agree with the principle <clears throat> that you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Suppose you agree with the posture of the giving. Of course, you shouldn't be forced to give. You should do it cheerfully. But instead of being on the Bible app on your phone, you're on your bank account app on your phone, and you're scrolling through, and you're saying, I really would like to be able to be generous, but I just don't have enough yet. Or perhaps I really would like to be generous, but I'm worried that I won't have enough. Look with me now at verses 8 and 9 where we discover the provision for generous living. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Christian, your God is generous. Thoroughly generous. Completely generous. His attitude and His actions are generous. His inclinations towards you are generous. Look at this language. I can't even get the right emphasis because it's just too much. All grace abound, having all sufficiency in all things. At all times you may abound in every good work. Five times His generosity leaves no exception. Two times His generosity causes an increase. He's not stingy. He's not calculating expenses. He's not running up credit. He's not loaning. He's not begrudging, and He is not poor. Consider the fullness of His generosity. When, when Paul speaks of all grace, he's not referring merely to some monetary compensation, as though some bargain had been struck between the giver and God I'll give, I'll give $100, you give me back $100, maybe more. That would be nice. Rather, all grace includes the monetary or the material grace and the spiritual grace. It includes all of the blessings and benefits of living generously, of imaging God rightly. In the Old Testament law regarding giving to a brother in need, God promises this in Deuteronomy 15.10, you shall give to him freely, 
and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. The generous way is the blessed way. The generous way is the fruitful way. Why is that? Because God makes it so. And for you, all grace will abound. Then when Paul speaks of all sufficiency, having all sufficiency, his Greek audience may have heard echoes of the Stoic and the Cynic philosophers who praised self-sufficiency as the pinnacle of virtue, that you would live without needing anyone or anything outside of yourself. Clearly, that's not his meaning here. All sufficiency means that you have everything you need because you have God, and God will make it so. God is sufficient, and He is ever generous. And because of that, the one who lives generously will have all they need, all the time. Now consider the final phrase in verse 8, so that you may abound in every good work. The abundance that God provides will overflow in generosity toward others. All the good works, all those good works that God created, uh, prepared in advance that you would walk in them, Ephesians 2, will be made possible, not by your self-sufficiency, but by the God who will make all grace abound to you. His provision, then, is explained further in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul quotes Psalm 112, which Michael and Anae read a few moments ago. I want you to turn there with me, please, to, to Psalm 112. We'll spend the next few minutes there considering this psalm as it relates to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and generous living. It says this, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There's our quote. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So the question in 2 Corinthians 9 is this. Whose righteousness endures forever? I want to say, it is God's righteousness that endures forever. But he's quoting from Psalm 112, which says this, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His righteousness endures forever. 
God will not forget him in this life or in the life to come. The free distribution, the generosity is derived from faith. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Faith in the generosity of God. I want you to just notice the negatives that are here in Psalm 112. There's only two of them. Two things that the blessed, generous man does not do in verses 7 and 8. He is not afraid. He will not be afraid. It's clear that generosity, this freeness to give, is connected to faith. When the person who fears the Lord loses their job, they're generous because they're not afraid. When the person who fears the Lord stares down a recession, they're generous because they're not afraid. When the person who fears the Lord isn't sure where the next meal will come from, they're generous because they're not afraid. They're not afraid because in their fear of the Lord, they are held, helped, supported, equipped by a generous God. Now, I just want to pause and testify that you can trust God in this. Several years ago, when, uh, when I was in seminary and we were living pretty much paycheck to paycheck, our car broke down. And it was a bad breakdown, like a $4,500 repair breakdown. We couldn't afford it. There was no way. Uh, at the time, we were supplementing our income by going to thrift stores and buying things and then uh, selling them on eBay. And the Lord had provided for us miraculously through that. But because I needed to come up with very many extra dollars very quickly, I went to the place where I found uh, the Lord to be generous most often. And I want, went to the thrift store. I had $6 in my pocket. And like I do every time, I went into the store and walked to the back where the books are. And there were tons of uninteresting trade paperback books you had to filter through, but there was one interesting set in a box. I took the box off the shelf and, and opened it and found it to be the presidential memoirs of Dwight Eisenhower, which was kind of interesting. Uh, but as I was opening the, the cover page, there was a signature on the, on the front page, on the end paper, Dwight Eisenhower. And... Yes, I bought the books, okay? I had six dollars. They were $5.95. I bought the books. And I took them home, and as, as we got home and started looking them up to see what we could sell them for, see how amazing the Lord's provision would be, they, they were listed on several other collector sites for $4,500. And you know what? I'm not making this up. You know what happened for me? My faith grew. I started to, to maybe understand God cares for me. He knows the details of my life, and He's able to provide. The story turns out we didn't even need the books because He provided through countless other means. The books didn't sell for months. They didn't sell for $4,500. But I felt, I knew that I was loved and cared for by God. 
I could tell you another story about a time that we adopted our oldest daughter, Cedar. We were still in seminary, uh, still living paycheck to paycheck, and uh, someone from the church handed us an envelope that said baby money, and we opened the envelope, and there was $5,000 in it toward adoption expenses. Or I could tell you another story uh, about a time we came home from church one day and there was an envelope shoved under the door that had $1,000 in it with, a, with instructions, 500 for you, 500 to give. I won't tell you those stories, but the point of the stories is this. You can be certain without a doubt that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Well, the provision for generous living is not just something that you can hope for like you hope that Santa brought you that toy you asked for. You can bet the farm on it because God has promised it. Consider now the promise of generous living in verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God has pledged himself to free you to give. Now, here's how this promise fits in the, in the rest of our passage. God is the one who supplies the seed, and the generous person sows the seed, and he, as he's sowing it, it's multiplying by giving generously. God takes care of the generous person, providing bread for food, and then God swells the harvest of the generous person's righteousness, increasing its proportions. Blessing abounds for them, for them, for those who receive their generosity, and for God. In fact, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. There won't be an occasion where God forgets you. There won't be an occasion where you will have to store up and defend your own. There won't be an instant where you will be found lacking. You will always have enough to be generous. Notice the little appendage there at the end of halfway through verse 11. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. I told you, I'm talking about a manner of life, not a one-time contribution. Do you think that the generous life is generous only in money? Or is it generous in every way? Generous with money, sure, but generous in hospitality. Generous with food, generous with time, generous with help, generous with bedrooms, generous with cars, generous with encouragement, generous in every way as a way of life. So where do you begin to start? If it's basically generous in everything all the time, where do you start? And here will be your greatest challenge. You will hear this. I hope you'll even be inspired by this, and you'll go home intending to try harder, to do better, to give more. A noble aim, but a fruitless one. The starting place for the generous life is to come to 
God, dependent on Him, in need of Him again, to put your faith in Him again today and every day. You shouldn't feel compelled by these words you hear this morning. You should instead find such joy in God that like the Macedonian church you give according to and beyond your means because of the abundance of your joy. So this isn't a message to rally the church to give more in the face of a looming recession. This is a message to put your faith in God again today with all the far and dark corners of your life. To believe the generous God and to trust His promises and to order your way of life accordingly. Faith in a generous God produces generosity in His people. Then you can start to think about the world of generous options. Only when your dependence on God is established will those myriad of ways be applicable. By faith, your life will be lived generously. You'll experience the multiplication, the increase, the enrichment that God provides. And the promised outcome of this faith is an experience of supernatural provision. We've been praying to experience the Lord move supernaturally. Praying that God would do something miraculous in our life. And here the capital G giver has pledged that you will experience reason-defying provision as you live generously. So would you trust Him, even with your money, that you might experience His goodness? Now I must add a parenthesis here. Just to be sure it is clear. There is a false prosperity gospel that says God rewards faith with wealth, health, and prosperity. That is not what the Scriptures teach, and that is not what I have communicated. Faith in God does not necessarily produce wealth. It does, however, necessarily produce generosity and provision to the degree that you've decided in your heart to cheerfully give. And for that very reason, you might never, ever experience wealth. Your faith in God might make you, in fact, look, by all accounts, like you have nothing. Yet every single need of yours will be met. You can be sure that in being loved by God as a cheerful giver, you'll be enriched in every way. End of parenthesis. Well, finally, where is all of this pointed? What is its goal? Where is the aim? What is the purpose of the generous life? Look at verse 11, the second half. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
When faith produces generosity, who receives the praise? God. When generous people produce generosity, who gets the praise? The generous person. But when faith produces generous people, God gets the praise. The generous giver is able to thank God. Thank you, God, for providing for more than my every need. Thank you, God, for bringing me joy and generous living. Thank you, God, for the spiritual fulfillment of knowing I'm loved by you. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being an agent of your blessing to others. So the giver gives thanks to God. The recipient also gives thanks to God. Thank you, God for supernaturally providing exactly what I have needed. Thank you, God, for your provision for the giver. Thank you, God, for increasing my faith that you care for me. And then there are some of us watching this generous life. The spectators thank God as well. Thank you, God, for displaying your character through the generosity of your people. Thank you, God, for sharing your wealth with your people. Thank you, God, that we share each other's burdens here. That in one's abundance, the needs of the other are met. All praise to God. And that's how 2 Corinthians 9 ends. I'll read the conclusion, 12, beginning of verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. That's where it's headed. That's where the generous life goes, to the glory of God. As we conclude, I want to go back, though, to the first order, the fundamentals, so to speak. Where does this faith come from? Where does the certainty of the promise come from? Where does the cheerful heart come from? Where does the desire to live generously originate? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, answers those questions for us. And the answer is not try harder to do better and give more. The answer is this. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The generosity of God in Christ enables, empowers, and equips people who belong to Jesus to be generous. In Christ, we possess all the riches of being united with God. All the blessing that is entailed in being loved by God. And all the wealth of His righteousness 
In Christ, we have the freedom to give generously because we belong to a generous God. The generosity of Christ toward us in giving His life for His enemies implants faith, awakens generosity in otherwise cold, dead, miserly hearts. And this was the effect that it had for the Corinthian church. Continue in chapter 8, verse 10. He said, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. The exchange has has created now the desire for this Corinthian church to give. The desire to live a generous life comes from the generosity of Christ, who for your sake became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Oh, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we consider your generosity to us, not merely through the things that we receive, but through the gift of your Son. We hold onto the words of Romans 8.32, that he did not spare his own Son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will you not also along with Him graciously give us all things? God, you've given us a heart that desires your way, your truth, your life. And so now, would you make that possible? Would you work that into our lives? Would you help us to reflect, to image the generosity of the Creator well in our world. And oh, we give you thanks. We give you thanks now in advance, in expectation. We give you thanks as we think through uh, even the, the way we have seen you work in our past. We thank you for the promise, the surety, the confidence we have because of your Son. In your name, amen.